0: Fuse in Focus, Fuse FM's flagship news show.
1: Hi, guys, and thanks for joining us for Fuse and Focus this week. On today's episode, I'm joined by Serafina.
2: Hello. Jess. Hi.
1: And Sasha. You're right, everyone. So, we've got four interesting stories for you this week, and we're going to start with an international one first and it's on Russian militarization, protests, and international rhetoric from Putin. This past week has seen an increased militarization on the Russo-Ukrainian border. Whilst President Putin sharpens his international rhetoric, he deals with lowering approval ratings and a domestic crisis which centers around the figure of the jailed anti-Kremlin campaigner Alexei Navalny. One man sees himself as a Romanov reborn, commanding a pseudo-democratic police state, whilst the other is imprisoned, with death being an ever-increasing possibility at the penal colony he has held, which resembles the conditions of Soviet-era gulags. Whilst Vladimir Putin's domestic enemy, Alexei Navalny, may be weak from his 24-day-long hunger strike, which only recently came to an end, he still remains Russia's most effective opposition leader. Navalny's matter-of-fact compelling campaign tactics resonate with voters in Russia who are increasingly angered by the blatant corruption and erosion of the rule of law which ravages Russian territory. Navalny has galvanized the movement which challenges Putin's party at elections and mocks the Kremlin's lies and corruption to the Russian public. Such an affront on Putin's domestic stability led to the poisoning of Navalny last year and his recent imprisonment on phony charges. This is why recently his closest supporters are being targeted by Russian authorities and pro-Putin, pro-Putin prosecutors are pushing to brand Navalny's organization as extremist, in an attempt to ruthlessly subdue any opposition. It also reveals why Putin is looking to the international domain, eager to change subject and rally patriotic Russian supporters in once again increasing military activity along the Ukrainian border. These past weeks have seen cold winds blowing from the east, As 100,000 troops amassed on the Russo-Ukrainian border, the threat of war has worried the Western world. President Putin used his recent State of the Union speech to warn the West of, quote, crossing the red line, saying that this would trigger a swift and tough response. Tensions have risen following the imposition of additional sanctions by America in response to political meddling of Russian agents and espionage accusations, whilst diplomats from European nations have traded tick for tat expulsions with the Russians. Putin has accused the West of picking on Russia like jackals round a tiger, and in true sabre-rattling fashion, reminiscent of Putin's political idol Tsar Peter the Great, the Russian president has threatened with military action to divide the West and shore up domestic voters. Russia currently suffers from domestic political strife and a faltering economy resulting from the COVID pandemic and the one crop economic overreliance on spot prices of oil and natural gas. In presenting a veneer of authority stability in light of such circumstances, Putin has looked to pass Russian foreign policy directives in threatening the West to not engage in its traditional sphere of influence where in the regions of Ukraine, Belarus, along with Caucasus nations, have been carved out by Putin as areas where Russian dominance reigns supreme. By trying to portray Russian great power status, the President appears t- to present his role as a blend of Romanov Tsarism and the Gaulist militaristic leader, who has been restoring Russian dominance since the humiliation of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Putin has often spoken about the fall of the Union as the greatest tragedy of modern times, and it is in his geopolitical machinations where Putin looks to consolidate response in such shaky domestic political climates. Whilst an imminent invasion of eastern Ukraine looks unlikely, the domestic situation looks bleak for Putin. With pro democracy and anti corruption protests spreading across Russian cities, authorities have attempted to stamp stamp out Navalny's supporters. Yet even from prison, with continued Instagram posts and messages of hope, Navalny remains a threat to Putin's domestic hegemony uh, with his hunger strike at an end and health in somewhat recovery. Only time will tell whether these protests will amount to a change in Russian politics or whether Putin will resort to military action to silence domestic opposition. So given these um, developing, developing circumstances in Russia, so, firstly, I would like to ask you: What do you make of Putin's fragile domestic situation? Do you believe the imprisoned Navalny is enough of a threat to Putin's long reign at the head of Russian politics?
3: I'm not sure, to be honest, but I, he has kind of made a martyr out of him, and especially with the failures of the assassination, um, it's it's gone terribly wrong. It, without like, and when he uh, he humorously said um, when he was accused for the first time of doing it immediately after when. Navalny was transferred to Germany that if his um, spies had attempted to assassinate him he would be dead Um, so he was distancing himself from the situation and yet everyone knew that it was it was in fact him that tried to kill him Um, and because of that it's only compounded the reasons that um, people perceive um, Navalny as this leader and an almost martyr now that he's been imprisoned um, and who's even survived an assassination attempt compared to putin's um, failures or to, to even to even curtail his opponents um, rise so i think the whole situation has really fed into putin's downfall and i think the the fact that there's a growing number of protests throughout russia just illustrates that even more so and that the pe that, that that those feelings are being transpired into the people's
2: understanding of it as well yeah it's definitely added to some sort of creation of an opposition because obviously for a while there just hasn't been much. That um, would of any shape, way or form, be able to oppose um, Putin, but I am still a little bit skeptical as to whether it's enough, um, just because the whole Putin has on on Russia and the population and obviously like elections and stuff. I think it's just insane. Like his propaganda campaigns and the way he goes about doing politics is. It's scarily similar to some of the stuff that we, you know, we did see in the USSR and uh, back in the days of the Sardom, but um, it's not something the international community kind of have much say in. And so it's something that's left very much by itself because it's just like Russia, you can't do much about it. So I just feel like, yes, there's obviously been quite a lot of news about Navalny and the fact there is an opposition now. But I don't know if I trust that it's big enough to be able to actually make any dent on the the kind of fortress that is Putin and his following.
1: Yeah, interestingly to um, what you both said, Biden did recently um, talk about the state of Navalny's health while he was on hunger strike. And he said that if um, Navalny died while in this penal colony in Russia, that Russia would be met with sanctions from the US. But there was little said of any kind of form of military response to uh, a Russian invasion of Eastern Ukraine. So I do think, uh, I agree with your point, Serafina, on the side that, uh, Russia does seem like this fortress uh, and is very resolute to international pressure, like economically speaking in terms of sanctions. Um, Putin had his government readjust to what was labeled a wartime economy where they can make provisions and deal with economic sanctions while kind of maintaining a somewhat stable economic environment at home. Also, of like recent exploration of natural gas in the Arctic regions with um, kind of passages melting, they can profit from that. So it does seem that if anything was to change within Russia, it'd have to crumble within within itself domestically, rather than succumb to international pressure. Um, so on this theme of international pressure, my next question is, um, do you believe that the Russians may carry through an attack on Eastern Ukraine? And do you think such a situation could escalate to a war between the West and Russia? So potentially sparking off a third world war?
3: I think at the moment it's a whole lot of posturing, Um, and the one indication that I would get from perhaps uh, an actual conflict from coming out um, uh, would be twofold. One, um, we have uh, a dictator, for want of a better word, um, losing grip on power, and one way to shore up um, unity within a nation is to start a war. So there's, there's that. And then the second one is the change in um, policy direction from the US as well, who obviously have been uh, uh, a nemesis, so to say, of, of Russia throughout the years, especially during the 20th century. Um, and with Biden coming from the era of the Cold War and his policy directive shifting much more away from concentration on the Middle East with withdrawing troops from Afghanistan, um and repositioning more troops in germany it does seem like there's been a, a slight shift in emphasis on on where biden and america seem to s- perceive um a threat to 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 their stability within in the euro region and also within the middle east um i mean it might also be the fact that that they've, uh, america have come accomplished relatively little by going into the middle east in the last um 20 years or so and have now Try now trying to exploit the weaknesses of um, a failing demagogue. But um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I mean, hopefully hopefully we don't see a World War three in our lifetime. Um, I imagine no one wants it, especially, especially at the moment with COVID. Um, it, it would devastate economies even further than they have been. So I think there's enough to prevent it from ever happening. But um, I wouldn't be surprised to see more actions um, uh, specifically in terms of sanctions from the us and then um uh, and then russia aggression towards its neighbors um continuing for the next couple of years
0: i think that's definitely true with like the economic devastation the pandemics had on so many superpowers in in the globe that i think world war 3 is kind of off the charts like it's not c- couldn't possibly happen because people aren't financially stable for that to go ahead and i think the pandemic has shaken up society so much that again it would be another thing to go through and I think the public kind of just wants some stability right now and you know conflict World War III uncertainty isn't really on the cards.
2: I don't think there would be an all-out war I think you know as we saw with the Cold War and as we're sort of seeing with like sanctions and kind of proxy wars and tension going on in this kind of Russian sphere of influence you've you've got you've got some kind of tension you've got some kind of you know the butting heads at points. But I don't think it would turn out into. I hope it wouldn't turn into a full on war, um, just because of you know there's nuclear weapons involved, and mm. that was that was obviously quite a big issue for the last, couple, um, <laughs> last half of the century. But. Um, I don't know if it would necessarily turn into an all-out war, just because I think, with as you were saying, like with the the kind of failures that America has had in the Middle East, their track record's not looking great with wars at the moment, so I feel like it would be a bit of a, you know, it'd be more of like an image thing, and I don't think they'd want to risk that, but I don't know anything about American politics, really, so that's just my humble opinion. <laughs>
1: My last question kind of uh, revolves around Biden which we've touched on a bit. So um, with sanctions increasing from the US do you believe that Biden offers a more authoritative counter to Russian power in comparison to the presidency of Donald Trump who almost seemed quite submissive to Putin in the time of his presidency?
2: I think it's more oppositional just because they aren't friends as much as Trump and Putin were. Like I think that there was probably less of a threat back then because trump and Putin, you know it, they might not have been like best mates but they were quite similar in some ways um and so i think there's probably more of a threat of it now that biden kind of stands for a lot of things that oppose uh Putin.
3: yeah i can't remember where i heard this is probably al jazeera because that's the news channel i listen to most but um biden came out and um called putin a, a cold-hearted killer um and so the the posture whereas i think trump even praised putin um during his time um I mean obviously they weren't cushy because to say but um uh because russia and, and the us never really are but you're right in the in the um the way in which trump and putin uh, position themselves politically was very much more authoritarian whereas biden's very much going back to the roots of of american foreign policy and roots of um of how america has previously been led with um, consulting with its allies um, in order to pr- put um, pressure on on its uh, enemies and also um, uh, going back to its its old divides in terms of east west rather than um, rather than focusing specifically on the middle east um, but yeah um, yeah i'm not sure um, like serafina I'm, I'm not can be really familiar with Biden's policies per se, but that would be that would be my piece on it.
2: Okay, so we're gonna move on to my story now, and this is about the coronavirus crisis that's going on in India at the moment. Um, so. They have had more than 17 million infections in this second wave. Uh, They've they've just surpassed over 200,000 deaths as of today, which is the 28th of April. And on the Tuesday we've just had, there was 320,000 new infections. So they are struggling quite a lot. The hospitals are full. There's very, very few critical care care beds left and people are driving for miles to find beds and ventilators uh, for people that are really ill. The demand for oxygen is ridiculously high having to get international shipments in and people are dying for lack of oxygen um, and then obviously they have a culture of uh cremations in india and so that is also proven to be a problem because funeral services are being overwhelmed there's literally not enough space and funeral pyres. they're having to do mass cremations um which obviously kind of isn't quite what people would be wanting for the burials so the reason this is happening is because there has been a mutated virus strain in India but also because there has been some recent mass gatherings going on there and also a very very low vaccination take-up rate so only 10% of the population has been vaccinated so far obviously it's a huge huge country millions of people others in the BBC they interviewed a doctor called Zaria Udwadia who said that the rollout had been glacially slow, and at this rate, the country wouldn't reach anything approaching herd immunity within 600 days? So they've got another two years basically left um, of vaccination before it gets to a critical point. So some things are being done. Uh, the Indian government under Modi is has now started an oxygen express, so it's a train carrying tanks of oxygen up and down the country to where it's needed, and the Indian Air Force is also airlifting oxygen to military bases. They're using train carriages as wards, which is something that they were doing last year, but they didn't need to sort of implement as as critically as they are having to do now. Um, And they've got companies making sort of makeshift cardboard beds just to make the most out of the resources they've got. And we also have seen quite a lot of international government help as well. So the UK, for example, has sent ventilators and oxygen concentrators. And then Biden says he's going to send some of the 60 million doses that he's promised for foreign countries to India. And he's also promised oxygen supplies as well. Uh, The UK won't be sending vaccines just because a spokesperson for the government said that we are focusing on getting our vulnerable groups vaccinated and they won't be looking at giving out vaccines until our population is vaccinated. But I just wanted to link this to the idea of kind of social media activism and charity and kind of grassroots responses to international crises like this. So I've seen quite a lot of people on social media promoting donating to charities that can help out in India as per usual when you get international crises, crisis there's quite a lot of these sort of pretty nice aesthetic posts that are like what's happening in India and how you can help and all these sorts of things which we'll go on to talk about a bit later but I, the, the the one thing that's sort of not sitting quite right with me at the moment is that there's quite a lot of posts on Twitter I've seen um that are suggesting that the Indian diaspora across the world should be helping out people in India and it's like it relies on them to kind of help this crisis come about so um one of the tweets that i saw which i, I won't include the use names and i've edited it quite a lot for clarity but it says i don't want to hear people saying i feel useless from the diaspora it's an easy way to shield yourself from responsibility open your wallets our people are dying out there so as you can see there's quite a kind of aggressive narrative here that you need to be helping otherwise you're letting down your compatriots your, the people from the country you're from um and so i just wanted to sort of ask if we think that we as international citizens have a duty to help um, or maybe not as international citizens, but as part of the Indian diaspora, as people who, you know, are Indian. Um, do you think that that is something that we should be doing or is it something to the governments? And is this sort of a weird guilt tripping that we're, we're going through on social media?
1: One thing I can compare it to is um, when we recently had the war in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, Um, and um, Armenia has a really large diaspora throughout the world and specifically in the US and um, they started um, so Armenians living in the US started um, kind of like major GoFundMe pages to um, kind of like help like relief aid hospitals in Armenia when they were facing the war with Azerbaijan Um, so there is kind of like there was a strong community feel from the diaspora abroad especially because There's this perception that they are wealthier so that they should then donate back to their home country and I think that if there's a feeling amongst people and especially like when you have familial ties with your mother country then yeah that's that's a good thing but in terms of like pressuring members of of the diaspora to kind of open their wallets and give money I also think like I agree with you you said oh it doesn't sit well with me in the sense of like it seems like it's a very forceful nature I think it should come out of like a moral sense of like self-obligation rather than kind of like preaching people to do it. And I also feel like that kind of preachiness and telling members of the diaspora about this is a fo- an issue they need to focus on kind of then lets off the point that the real problem that we have here and something that we spoke on a few show a few weeks ago is this problem of vaccine nationalism and in this sense in the catastrophe that we're seeing in india it's vaccine hoarding by rich western nations so you've seen in the uk in the us there are large uh, stockpiles i think there was a stat that in the uk there are five doses per person so more more than more doses than each person needs and we still stockpile doses for our own uh for our own domestic purposes which i think like the argument of like you need to clean up your own home before you can kind of help your neighbor applies to this but in the sense of the covid pandemic the pandemic's not over until the entire globe in terms of all the nations around the world have vaccinated enough people to limit infection rates so what we need to see more so than um, the diaspora acting which I think is a good thing to kind of get a community feeling but not forcefully like I said but what we need to see less of is vaccine hoarding because it appears ever more disgusting in what we're seeing with India right now
3: India was the biggest exporter last year of COVID vaccines. Uh, According to the government data, India shipped 66 million doses overseas since January, easily enough to vaccinate the whole of Delhi, Mumbai, and Kolkata. These were
1: contracted for sales out of india the indians couldn't keep hold of them they were contracted to go to western nations okay,
3: because wealthier nations can afford to buy them up
1: well it, it, was, it was basically Astra, astrazeneca was manufacturing them in india because it was cheaper labor but then to ship back to britain and to sell on
3: right so it
1: was, could, it was, it's, it's, no almost, it's almost exploitative in that sense yeah,
0: yeah. Up, though, that they've had the vaccines in the country and because they're not a wealthy country such as the US or the UK, they've not been able to keep them to vaccinate their population, despite yeah. you know healthcare um, in you know poorer countries is a lot worse than what we have, and I think that's kind of the the stoicism of Britain. You know, it's like well, once we've cleared coronavirus, it's fine, it's all good, but that's not the case, and I think there's been you know pressure put on UK UK people wanting to go on holiday. And I think that's just, you know, the fact that people aren't getting vaccines and it's still a humongous COVID crisis going on, not on our doorstep. is just not being, it's just being forgotten. I think if you only really find out if you read the news and you really want to see what the situation is in other places. I think when it's close to home, such as in France or Italy, you'll be like, oh, that's that's very close. You know, let's let's read up on it. Let's see if we can help. Whereas it's in India, it feels like it's very far away and you can't really connect with that and maybe that's what it means by the diaspora like wanting to help because i guess it's a link to make more people in the uk aware of what's going on but i think it's it's a societal pressure you know there shouldn't be one country suffering you know unjustly when it's a pandemic it's affected everybody you know everyone's been affected and i think everybody should be treated equally and vaccinated equally
2: i think the issue with the the charity thing in india though is that it's quite an impenetrable problem like with the fact that the Modi government is quite set in their ways and they you know that if they're going to do something they're going to do it a very specific way and not really take much into account as we've seen with the sort of farmers protests recently um and i think that just com- trying to convince the diaspora to donate isn't going to do much because this is a huge 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 problem as, as i said 200 000 deaths and i don't think that sort of a couple of people donating 10 quid here and there is really going to help because they might be able to buy one ventilator but that's going to help one uh tiny little part of india and india is obviously massive so i think it's it's just like a problem that as you're saying like if if you don't really look into it it's not really something because it's so far away and it's such a huge problem that seems quite difficult for us to try and help out with um so i don't as i i i personally um this one political piece coming through but i don't think that charity should really even need to exist um because i think the government should. governments that responsibility to have to the population um and so to me it just seems a little bit as i said it doesn't sit quite right with me the fact that people um are having to sort of fund one or two ventilators here or there when it's actually such a much bigger problem that we
0: really can't actually tackle as people like individuals in so far away i think in terms of trust though when you have a charity i think if you can see that i think i've just read that google and microsoft are are donating a lot of money and they're going through unicef to do that i think when you have governments such as the uk government saying no we're going to vaccinate our population first or you know other countries being quite protective and hoarding these vaccines if you know there's a charity out there who are looking to kind of help people that are actually really vulnerable you would rather give it to them so you know it's going to go to those people who need it rather than having these kind of bias views well let's 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 get our you know quite protective and very looking at the borders being restricted by your borders to vaccinate people but you know coronavirus doesn't see borders coronavirus can go anywhere it wants so i think it's just really looking at vaccinating those in the vulnerable positions
1: i think though like although coronavirus doesn't see borders the reality of the situation is that it is uh, a, a pandemic that's affecting nation states and nation states operate more realistically and pragmatically than say like a a, a united approach like say who has been saying for so long and vaccine nationalism and vaccine hoarding does it is it is a reality it's a reality and it's obviously like we may argue the the morality the ethics of it how it may be wrong but that doesn't mean that it will go away so kind of my final point on this diaspora um the diaspora charity is um the fact that what I could compare it to as being a member of the Polish diaspora, and if Poland was uh, a developing economy uh, that was struggling, um, so say like comparing it to like the Indian case, then I would feel personally um, like responsible, maybe maybe obliged is the better word of obliged to kind of chip in a bit that I could to kind of help the situation back at home. So I do kind of see the merit of that and. Um, But like I said at the start, when uh, we were talking about this, I don't think that people need to be kind of overly preachy on that tone, because it does, in a sense, then kind of remove the point that the the real problem is vaccine hoarding and kind of placing blame on diaspora members and responsibility on them, but saying like, if you don't do this, you're a bad person. Obviously, that's kind of the wrong way of framing the narrative. That's just my opinion on it, but it is a kind of a necessary good that has to happen in the reality of international politics.
2: Yeah so to sum up I think the issue is that it's something that's on quite a large scale that individuals are being either blamed for or asked to help out and which really can't really be tackled unless it is looked at through the bigger picture.
3: So in 2020 um, the Northern Independence Party was founded um, and basically their primary aim is to eliminate the North-South divide. Um, The NIP's Uh, policy platform is based around this issue and argues is solved by two core means Uh, radical regional separatism in the creation of an independent Northumbria and the adoption of democratic socialism within this independent state. Um, On its manifesto it says "After after achieving its independence the North would embark on a green industrial rebirth and a democratization of the economy um, included within their manifesto are policies such as the introduction of uh, UBI Universal Basic Income, uh, the instalment of the Preston model, which more closely integrates the city council with other local institutions such as colleges, university, and housing associations, which have greater spending power than its own, to have an overall greater impact on the future well-being of the area. Um, As well as a 15% pay rise for NHS staff and among other policies uh, that show a distinct alternative to the rest of the UK, uh, they say they also provide um, free school meals for all children. Um, However, there are some significant obstacles to that success, uh, the most obvious of which is the nature of the system they wish to enter um our current bipartisan system makes it near impossible for smaller parties especially new ones to gain like a foothold in elections at all um the result of the first past the post system means that the nip would have to win substantial support from established parties in concentrated areas to even win a seat evidence for this difficulty can be found in the ukips performance in the 2015 general election, when despite winning over 3.6 million votes, 14.1% of all votes cast, UKIP were only able to win one seat, which is not point sorry, 0.15% of seats total. Um, the other significant barrier uh, to their success might be in the lack of a cl- uh, clear national identity. So unlike the independent movements of Ireland, Scotland and Wales, which each have their own independent identities, language and customs, a universal northern culture is arguably lacking depth and breadth. Um, the NIP recognised this, uh, uh, this notion uh, of the difference of regional identities within the north and claim that, that this is something that could be accommodated with a federalist approach to Northumbrian governance. Um, so the next question would be, um, that comes up, is do they stand a chance? Um, we will know more after the uh, May 6th um, city council elections when various candidates will contest for, for seats, as well as the Hartlepool by-election. Going on the predictions uh, for the by-election, it seems unlikely that they will pick up a seat polling at only 2%. And although not large, the figure is significant as they'll cut their currently ahead of Greens and Liberal Democrats in this in this race. Um, the NAP is also not the first regional party to enter pol- uh, electoral politics. In recent years, the establishment of the Yorkshire party and Northeast party has shown a willingness for uh, the construction of a politic distinct from that of Labour and the Conservatives. However, neither has achieved any true success due to facing the same barriers the NIP um, currently face. Um, however, supporters of the NIP and their ideals, however, might be buoyed by the potential to dominate the sphere of single issue politics, That um, their plan to enter candidates into marginal seats and use their influence to force the established parties to take North south divide seriously. So um, the first question I put to you is that, do you think that the NIP will have an impact? Um, and if so, would, would that be electorally or simply through raising awareness around the issue of the North-South divide and then for putting pressure on uh, the current establishment?
1: I think that um, they may have an impact within pressuring uh, Labour. So I looked at the Hartpool kind of um, polling elections and it was um the tories were winning at 49 percent compared to labor at 42 and then the northern independence party came with close third uh, after labor so they're effectively splitting the labor vote in that in that uh, constituency And um, what this means and what it can do for the Labour Party, it can go one of two ways. It can even make the Labour Party look inwards and kind of assess the situation and look how to gain voters in the north. Because I feel like since Brexit, there's become kind of a stereotype of um, northern voters who once were staunch Labour and then went over to the Conservatives. And especially from London centric media, there's been like this cruel stereotypes of these voters without understanding them and also kind of like mocking the circumstances that they are in. Um, so I think the Northern in- Independence Party can kind of shed new light on this and make people in the region feel like there is a voice that's repre- representing, representing them, that may they may not normally feel from Westminster. Also, you can compare it to... Um, the Five Star Movement in Italy, which is a recent left-wing party in Italy that sprung up as kind of an opposition to the right-wing dominated Italian politics we've seen in the last few years. And they emerged in similar similar circumstances to the Northern Independence Party, weren't taken uh, very seriously initially, and then had a role to play in toppling um, the Italian government in 2018, and then forming coalitions but in this article that I read about comparing the Northern Independence Party with the Italian Five Star Movement, um, the big thing here is that in uh, Italy, it's a representative democratic system in terms of voting, and here we have, um, obviously, the MP constituency-based voting, where, like, um, you already raised, Sasha, um, parties like UKIP, for example, who might have had a large share of the vote at 3.5 million. Was it 3.5 million?
3: 3.6,
1: yeah. 3.6 million, but only one MP in uh, in Parliament. So obviously um, the way the voting system that we have in our democracy will hinder the Northern Independence Party in that sense. So I think kind of the big aim that we could look from the Northern Independence Party is whilst splitting the Labour vote in some regions, it can put pressure on Labour to do better. And we might even see in general elections a situation emerging like we did when um, UKIP aligned itself with the Conservatives. So in seats that were contested, they would run against uh, Labour, but in seats that were definite Conservative seats, UKIP stood down. So if there can be an agreement that's made between them and then the Northern Independence Party can act as kind of like a pressure block upon Labour to do better, then that's something that I'd like to see. Um, That's my opinion on it.
3: That was a great bit piece um and touching on that i'd like to bring in the second question and put this to Serafina and jess um, which is given given all that was said especially about um, ukip which had 14.1 of the total votes but only not 0.15 uh, of seats uh do you think that the uh, first past the post system should be reviewed to allow small, smaller parties to have more of a say in in broader politic
2: yeah definitely i think well, I think it should be looked at, but I don't think it will be. So kind of as Peter was saying, like with UKIP, I think this new party will probably be more of a sort of uh an ideological pressure or like something about policy to show that this is an issue that people are passionate about and want changing. Um and you know, we might see it sort of happen. So obviously the uh there's been a history of sort of people wanting independence of different parts of of the uk for quite a while just as was a history of people in the tory party wanting brexit for quite a while which then the invent of uh so the advent of ukip sort of helped kind of centralize this pressure and it became more of like a majority issue rather than something that was just in the tory party so we might see something similar to that happening um to be honest i can't see more uh a more federal system happening in the uk i can't really see more it being split down into more nations just because i think we're such a tiny nation anyway and i don't think the political establishment would respond very well to that um but i think it could show that definitely stuff needs to be done about the fact that the north south divide is quite a quite a big thing in this country and i think especially with the coronavirus pandemic we've seen obviously andy burnham doing quite a lot of stuff that showed that the, the government don't treat the north and the south the same so i think it will bring um attention to that but i don't think it's going to force anything necessarily through. Um, and sorry, back to your question about first past the post. As I said, yeah, definitely think that it needs to be looked at because it isn't representative of the population. You know, if you're just choosing between the Conservative Party and Labour Party, that's not much choice. And there are people with with lots of different opinions across the country that don't get a say at all. Um, but I think it's just so such a complicated issue and such a big change to make. And choosing a different um system is also very difficult because obviously like different representative um parties mean that you get like a less stable base if you've got a smaller majority and blah 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 it's it's quite a large issue that I don't think um our government is sort of ready or willing to have that conversation
0: yeah I think there's quite a lot of disillusionment with politics from younger people and I think that Labour kind of are dependent on this younger strand of voters um and I think that you know, I think with Corbyn, it was kind of, uh, you know, people sung his name in clubs and stuff. It was a lot of, like, power behind having Corbyn there. And I think with Keir Starmer now, I think a lot of young people may have shifted away. There's a lot of st- instability within politics at the moment. So I think having something new, something kind of, to read about as uh, saying, it, brought, it brings up challenges it brings up questions to ask the labour and conservative parties and i think they have been like challenging like the northern stereotype i know in one of them they were saying they want to nationalize greggs and <laughs> do things like that so i think there is a lot of things you can read about and kind of relate to with this this new like change um but yeah i think there needs to be fundamental change in the political parties and this is just another step to getting there
3: yeah absolutely i i, I definitely sympathize with that i think um If we talk specifically our generation and also um, my siblings generation as well, um, I think I think we're becoming far more disillusioned with with the current system. And I think although the establishment won't necessarily be inclined to review uh, the first past the post system immediately, I think it is up to us. And this will lead on to my third question to 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 instigate some sort of change which will. Redemocratize our, our system in a way that it hasn't been for, long, for a long period of time and that I think because of the bipartisan relationship and this relates to America as well in that it's become a contest of two very similar looking parties because they haven't actually had to be challenged by anyone from the outside so they just go with the centrist safe policies that don't actually make a real difference or in fact represent a lot of what voters actually want this, and this might even be related to, um, or evidenced in the Brexit or so-called Brexit election, which became, um, well, it, it destroyed what was so-called the Red Wall in the North of Labour, um, and has completely overturned like the, the previous uh, political assumptions of, of, of how parties, um, where they share their power. So in light of that, um, do you think that, um, do you think that prefer, what are your preferences on like the localization of democracy as opposed to a more global system um, or a more uh, a centralized system? Um, would you think that we should, as a generation in the future, look towards um, re re uh, seceding from 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 Westminster into into smaller localized uh, parties such as the NIP?
1: You mean, do you mean in a sense where we federate the UK while still remaining the UK, or complete
3: separatism? I don't know, but that'd be a that'd be a nuance um, that you'd have to to sort out, and I'd I'd be interested to hear your hear your views on it.
1: I'll just I'll just chip in um, with firstly first past the post. A similarity, but I can see from it coming from a historical background. Um, you had the Reform Act of the House of Commons in 1832. And one of the main things that I wanted to address was this concept of rocket, uh, rocket <laughs> rotten boroughs. And what the rotten boroughs were, were effectively um, constituencies where MPs and funnily enough at the time it was um, Tory MPs would basically be allocated a nomination for the House of Commons based on the fact that this rotten borough would be a guaranteed access point to the House of Commons so there'd be no kind of democratic contestation because you gain this rotten borough normally it'd be inherited uh, from wealth um because of be uh, aristocratic Tory MPs and they would ascend into parliament straight away The kind of similarity I want to draw, uh, because this is kind of more metaphoric than it is a literal similarity, is the fact that what first-past-the-post delivers is a form of rotten borough, in the sense that you may have people within a constituency that don't necessarily agree with uh, all points that their constituent is making but they will even go for party loyalties which is moving away now but also the fact that you may have 30 percent of people in the constituency who believe that that whatever MP that's been voted into parliament they completely disagree with their um, their policies and then you have a constituency which may have had a 51 ma- uh, majority but then 49 people are effectively not represented in that constituency, their voice in terms of being a member of where they live, which is the whole point of our system, a representative di- uh, democracy uh, would work much better than the first past the post system in the sense that um, people would actually have their voice heard and they would feel like they have their voice heard. Um, so that's kind of my first point in terms of the, the thing that I think we would need electoral reform like we had in the Reform Act of 1832. Um, secondly, in terms of federating and devolving down powers, I don't know if a Labour government would guarantee that necessarily, uh, because whilst under Blair, we had kind of the establishment of national assemblies in um, in in the various nations of the UK. Power was also centralised within the office of the Prime Minister. So we struck a balance between giving um, kind of regional people a voice while also kind of centralising power in Westminster, but not within the House of Commons, but within the office of the PM himself. Um, So I don't know whether a Labour government would deliver that, but that also depends ideologically on who the leader is. What I do kind of, I see the sentiment in terms of federation, And in terms of giving regional people more of a say on regional matters, mainly because it makes pragmatic sense. Only people in the region know what they want and what they need. And if there is uh, a representative demand for that, then why should kind of bureaucrats in uh, Westminster, bureaucrats working in the civil service, make decisions on, say, what's going on in Blackburn? like that's just that's just an example like surely the people of blackburn know better what they want and they can get that delivered through local councils if we federate power then if you give say a policy task team in westminster of civil servants deciding on how to manage that area so i definitely agree with this sentiment of devolving regional power and giving regional people a voice to govern matters on things they actually care about rather than bureaucrats deciding on how that region should be governed that makes way more sense like pragmatically, politically, and economically. But will that happen? Probably not.
3: I mean, if there was ever a time for it to happen, it would be now as well, because the, the technological advancements since first-past-the-post system came in have advanced so much in that we can be so connected uh, to, to the centralised government and yet have our own uh, regional regional voice um, and instantly connect with, with those thousands of miles away. So Even within such a small island, I don't see why it couldn't be implemented and why it shouldn't either.
0: So on the topic of kind of democratisation and things like that, we've got a final story, which is about the recent occupation of the Samuel Alexander Building on the University of Manchester's campus. So students have entered the Samuel Alexander Building on the 22nd of April as a protest against the treatment of students and staff since the beginning of the academic year. So the action is viewed as the last resort by the occupiers after months of protests of various kinds. And the occupiers have written an open letter to Nancy Rothwell, which details the reason behind the second occupation in addition to the demands of the occupation. And the groups involved are ranging from the rent strike, the Nancy Out campaign, cops off campus, and student staff solidarity at University of Manchester. And the students have said that they're gonna remain in the Sam Alexander until their demands have been met. Um, They said they'll not block students from entering the building, um, and remain quiet and respectful. However, once the students did enter, there was a lockdown put on the Samuel Alexander building, meaning that students now can't enter at all. And there are security blocking the entrances and exits. And, you know, we've seen students getting food through hoisting bags on rope through the windows. So yeah, the, the building seems to be on full lockdown. Um, But the demands of the occupation at the moment are a rent rebate of 30% for semester two for all students living in University Manchester halls in line with last semester's rebate. Democratize Manchester. So introduce elections for vice chancellors and other leadership positions. Increase student representation in university structures and diversify the board of governors in line with the Nancy Out campaign structural change proposal. So basically if they they get Nancy out, they want to be able to elect someone rather than just the next person in line going for the position. They want a cash rebate of 1,500 pounds for all students to be extracted from the university's 200 million pounds savings fund. They want to put an end to police patrols at the Foulfield Accommodation Campus with immediate effect, they want no compulsory redundancies for staff in the library whose jobs are currently in scope, and they want no punishment for taking part in the occupation. Um, they've hung banners from the Samuel Alexander building, one was quite amusing reading Nancy do not react, you are the saboteur, which references the CBBC traps show but the university have responded and they said that a small number of students are currently occupying an area in one of our buildings without permission. Staff are on site to ensure safety and welfare but they do ask that students leave. They understand that they have concerns but are continuing to work closely with their elected representatives and although the university declined to comment on the specific demands of the occupation they drew attention to a fact sheet released in March in which the university highlighted some of the ways they have endeavoured to support students. Um, so, included linking to the 600k contribution to the living cost support fund to help those struggling during the crisis and um, the financial support that's been given to 388 students which is equaled about 283 000. they've also highlighted which we heard in our interview with nancy rothwell a couple of weeks ago that actually they've spent a lot of money on online learning and this transition the current occupiers seem to indicate that despite these provisions they're still not happy and dissatisfied and actually other universities have joined joined in with these strikes in Sheffield and Nottingham, um, looking at the 30% rent rebate for all students. Um, they seem to have a similar, um, they want to follow that. So yeah, we're unsure how long the occupiers will stay in the Samuel Alexander building. Um, if it's anything like the tower occupation, I can imagine they'll, they, they are serious that they'll stay there until a demand is met. I know they've met with a student exec representative and that's not gone very well for them so far so um yeah I wonder what you guys thoughts on what the the demands are and how long you think they'll be there and if it's the if it's an effective way of protesting
3: I was just wondering do you know which student exec they met with
0: Kwame Kwame. yeah
3: yeah yeah I know him I, I ran in the um student elections um two years in a row obviously not successful but um which is kind of one of my points and that one of the demands is that they have uh, we have better representation as students uh, within the university um, and what i'd say to that is that the positions which Kwame and others of his position occupy are best bet of having some sort of representation however um, they're not they're not given the power i think that they should have um, and, and in terms of the democratization of, of the uni i don't think we should have a, a direct Direct say over who who um, is the vice chancellor per se, uh, just because um, as we discussed on an earlier podcast, students do have a limited awareness of what it takes to run a university, and therefore selecting a candidate for for that position would be would be difficult and perhaps make matters worse. However, increasing the power and the role, and also the prominence of representatives, as well as getting um, student engagement up with these positions and treating them um, less as a way to get a free lunch when voting um, and more as a, a means to actually dictate how you, the university is run, is is our as our best way of going about it. So, in regards to that point, I think that could be achieved outside of the occupation. Um, but I, I fully back the the idea of a rent. Re- Rebate and and uh, a cash rebate for for students who have been significantly affected by uh, the pandemic and and then the poor handling of it uh, by Manchester University.
0: Yeah, I think what happened in that, I mean, this is all um, allegations, but apparently there's a lot of sexist behaviour and sexist discourse towards the occupiers and the female um, occupier that was speaking to the exec, um, which I think is disgusting, really, if that's been happening, you know, you can have your own opinion on what the demands are for, but you need to treat everybody with respect, especially okay. if you're in an elected position. In terms of the demands, I have to say,
2: I am less supportive of this occupation than I was of the last one, just because, as you were saying, I don't think that we should have a say over people that run the university. I don't think it's not a precedent that's been set anywhere else. Um, and, you know, as, as people have said a lot over the past few months, universities are businesses and you don't normally get a democratic framework inside a, biz- a business you know you, you don't normally if you if you subscribe to the idea that uni is the business and we are the clients the clients don't normally get a saying who the ceo is of a company you know and also i think the fact is that some people are only here for a year if you're doing a master's that's not really enough time to get to know you know the whole ins and outs of the system and get to know enough that you would be able to elect the best candidate and stuff so I, i'm not sure i agree with that one um the last four i definitely think have some some backing so obviously no pu- punishment for the occupiers it's right to protest. It's obviously something that's been attacked quite a lot by the government recently. No compulsory redundancies. I think that's something that's quite effectively quite a lot I think, especially last year with the strikes, the uni did make quite a lot of, of cutbacks on staff, and I think it 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 was um, it was just a shame. I think it wasn't the best way to go about things. You know, I personally lost my academic advisor, and I haven't met my new one, so I'm being affected by that still now. And I think there's just so many lovely people, especially in the School of Humanities. I know got um. made redundant and stuff so i think you know the people in the library should definitely deserve to keep their jobs as well Uh, and in terms of police presence i think yeah they need to just get rid of the police presence it's it just takes away people's freedom and it just adds an element of sort of danger i guess uh in the fallowfield campus and i think that that just really needs to be taken away and people need to be trusted to live there i think it's just it's just something a bit iffy about having police around um and going into people's flats and telling them off for literally being in their kitchens um it's quite big brother-esque, I guess.
1: Um Yeah, I'd I'd pretty much agree with what was said by Sasha and Serafina there in terms of the fact that um the only demand that I do have some problems with getting behind is this idea of introducing elections for vice-chancellors and you know, other leadership position for the positions that were already said, um stated by the two of you and that we've stated before. But apart from that, I think especially the more financial um kind of clauses of this of this Occupy movement I think are completely fair enough and there's something that wouldn't necessarily be shed to light unless students take such a drastic kind of position of uh, leading the Occupy movement so kind of solidarity with them for standing up for students and kind of recognizing the fact that um, students have been hard uh, have been hit hard economically during this year of the Covid pandemic and like we uh, spoke about a few weeks ago in terms of um, they've often been scapegoated in terms of what government officials have said and kind of seeing them more as a plague and something to be feared than um, a a body of people to feel sympathy to be empathetic for and to hate so I feel like moments like this where you see um, student occupied movements not just at this university but uh, other universities at the country they kind of bring to light something that tends to be unspoken in the media and something that needs to be spoken about a bit more so um solidarity with them on that front but yeah the the um the democratized manchester clause i do have problems uh, with this idea of a student body electing a vice chancellor the sense that yeah uh, like seraphina said some students may only be here for a year or two years if they're doing a master's part-time or full-time um and students coming in first year who don't necessarily have any experience or knowledge of what uh, the ins and outs of running a university are like, Um, like I said before, uh, it's not a necessary kind of like point in democratising Manchester, there are other ways of doing it that we've spoken about before.
0: I think for first years at the moment, obviously being stuck in fallfield campus or any campus, I think often the other actual um accommodations are ignored in the in the conversations about this. But um, especially on Fowlerfield and the protests, I almost feel as though this, you know hate for Nancy Rothwell has come from kind of not having anyone else to blame for their problems and having this as a her as a figurehead. But they don't actually know what she's done, maybe in the past, or you know if you've only been here a year you've not really been on campus seen where money is spent Um, it has become this trend to join the Nancy out campaign to to have a voice, and obviously you can protest because some of the circumstances have been horrendous. But yeah, I do think she's become this figurehead. And I think there was a a sit-in the other week where people sat outside um, Whitworth Hall with Nancy and the senior leadership team masks on um, in protest. And I don't know, it just seems extreme, well, extremely extreme um, to to go there when I feel like a lot of first years haven't had the university experience anybody wanted. and yeah, just needed someone to blame.
3: I, I, I don't know about that. I think you should be able to go right to the top. And Nancy is supposed to be running our university. And therefore, if she is if she is causing, especially first years who need to be treated with absolute respect and shown that they have a, a place where they have they've started a, a big transition in their lives. Um, they should have a direct yeah. line. I have to side
1: with Jess here because it's not like Nancy has some magical powers where she can remove
3: COVID and kind of. I was going to say, I was going to say they should be able to protest, and then Nancy should answer. However, students also have a responsibility to think of solutions themselves, and also um, if they want more democracy and more power within the university, act on it as as the protests have shown that they can, um, and do it in a more formal manner within the 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 executive positions which they have been given and if these positions do not satisfy the power that they need in order to feel like they have a voice in 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 the university then there should be structural changes made to those positions so that they do have more power and that people can be more engaged with these positions rather than being tr- them treated as just um a, a, i don't know a facade for 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 what um the university says um these positions are which is um partners um in in running the university so yeah
1: that's my piece there's there's better ways of democratizing the university without students having to pick vice chancellors without knowing much about what their roles entail and what their responsibilities are i think kind of encouraging students to maybe broaden the su senate broaden discussion there broaden kind of channels for students to have their voices heard to debate and to speak to senior leadership I think those are the things that need to be expanded rather than going for this top down approach of, oh, we don't like the vice chancellor, we don't think that she handled the pandemic well, which yes, given the fact that there have been many mistakes, but like I said, no university has handled this pandemic particularly well in terms of trying to manage their, especially first year students in halls, their feelings and kind of their like their ability to enjoy first year's the most. because thing is we, we've been suffering from a pandemic and the truth is that life won't be at its optimum and students won't have the best time right now and it's kind of a situation we need to face rather than kind of necessarily uh, like Jess was saying scapegoat and pin everything on Nancy as kind of the
3: sole problem. I agree but no university has dealt with the uh, with the pandemic worse than manchester which is why you've seen student protests happening in manchester first and then moving on to other universities um and i'll follow on with that um by saying um that the the reason that um the university has failed to deal with the pandemic um as it should have done um is because of previous issues that have been um that we felt throughout our three three years at manchester prior to that which have then been translated and compiled by the coronavirus the excuse that a lot of people in authority are using about the coronavirus to to scapegoat themselves from the issue or remove themselves from the issue is a common trend not only that universities have used but governments worldwide and we need to hold people accountable to that fact i I agree i agree with that
2: I think it just generally speaks to a trend of students not being happy with the way that we have been treated during this pandemic. We, we've been completely ignored by the government. And, you know, as as we were saying a couple of weeks ago, the, the fact is that we aren't now allowed to go back until the 17th of May. And yet school kids have been back for like a couple of months now. And, you know, we, we've got the facilities to be tested and we're, we can go and talk to hairdressers about dissertations, but not our academic advisor and stuff. So it just, there's not been much thought put into students and I think it's along with the the fact that we've had so many issues at University of Manchester it's all compounded itself into this one big sort of tense situation and people have lost faith in the SU exec you know over the past couple of years I know there's been a lot of cheating scandals and people just not being happy with the exec uh, team and so people don't really have that faith in that as a, a representative body of the student body so they feel like they have to go to the top maybe um but yeah, I think it just, it just represents a general trend in just people not being happy the way we've been treated and the way that we are able to express ourselves. Um, and I think it just comes out in stuff like this, but more power to them. And that's it for this week. Hope you've really enjoyed the show. And um, We'll be back next week, but for now, you're in focus.
0: This is Fuse and Focus Fuse FM's flagship news show.